Welcome to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World with your host, Anya Cates. This podcast has one mission, to rally a generation that's been labeled and groomed as lazy, triggered, and entitled, and invite us all to write a new story. One of a generation that's willing to challenge the status quo, reject black and white thinking, and opt out of each and every repressive system and box that we've been placed in. Above all else, I want to invite millennials to step up to the plate, to be vulnerable in owning our responsibility to ourselves and for walking this planet through the darkest of days. It's time to dream new dreams, write new stories, and create new futures. The great work begins. Hello from Bali. Been here about a week. I am currently in Changu, which is a beach town. Got here yesterday. Um, spent the rest of the time since I've been here in Ubud. It's really nice here, you guys. <clears throat> it's funny because I decided to come on this trip pretty last minute, and normally I'm one of those people that likes to plan ahead quite a bit, know what I'm doing, have a schedule. And this time I was totally not in charge. I came out and met a couple friends out here who sort of had everything already taken care of, was invited relatively last minute. And so I had very little expectation. I didn't really research Bali. I just sort of heard what people had said about it. It was always on the top of my list of places to go, but I hadn't really looked into it much. And so I sort of felt like I just plopped into the middle of this magical world. <laughs> um, and it's been really, really nice. It's funny because I actually I came out earlier than I was supposed to. I was supposed to get here yesterday, but decided to move my flight a few days earlier. And I'm actually decide, uh, probably going to stay here longer than originally planned. I was going to be out here for 10 days initially, then coming out early, prolonged it to 15, and now I might stay an extra week, so might be out here for a full month. Um, but it's my first time in Asia, and it's funny because a friend of mine was asking me who I'm out here with, like, oh, how are you adjusting? And I realized it was such a strange question, I mean, aside from the time change, which is significant, although not debilitating, it was like, oh, adjusting? Like, what is there to adjust to? There's something very familiar and comfortable about this place. And I've been talking about it with some people and thinking about it. And, you know, I think it's a combination of a lot of different things. But certainly the way of life feels very chill. Everyone's very friendly, welcoming, there's a lot of tourism here, but it doesn't really seem like there's much animosity toward the tourists. Um, at least I haven't experienced that at all. It's a very spiritual place. Everything smells amazing from all the different types of delicious Indonesian food to incense burning all the time. The sounds here from the temples, 
from even the hustle and bustle of the city, the scooters. It's just very calming. So it's been strange because although it's a place very far away from anywhere I've ever been, it's felt really normal and natural. What I feel like I have been adjusting to, not specific to Bali, is just this whole idea of freedom and being a bit unhinged. It's funny because I think, it, I guess the I recorded a solo episode for my patrons on Patreon and I talked about, I had a plan to go to grad school, grad school for quite a while and I decided to not go. And so I decided to release this whole episode that was all about that process for me of making the decision to go to the grad school, then deciding not to go and why and dealing with those sorts of changes in our lives and how we deal with big decisions like that and kind of promoting or preaching having, you know, the non-plan plan, which is definitely a way that I've lived my life in the past um, up until this point, which is like, eh, just kind of go with the flow, see what happens. You know, I'm going to take this step. I know that it's not the end of my path, but it seems like a step in the right direction. And <clears throat> since then, since deciding not to go to grad school, it seems every week <laughs> about that there's been another big change in my life in which I've had to adjust my plan. So first it was not going to grad school. Last, uh, the last podcast I recorded, I talked about how I was planning on moving to Colorado into my grandparents' cabin. And then that is not happening anymore. You can go back and listen to that as to why. And then now being in Bali, extending my trip, you know, I've, Definitely over the past, I guess probably ever since I left my full-time job, which was at this point almost four years ago, you know, my point was always to get as much freedom in my life as possible. So not having to, not having to be managed by anyone, not having to follow any sort of schedule for work, not having to answer anyone. I've sort of like systematically been trying to remove my connection, um, my obligation to anyone and anything for a long time. So I've been on this path of doing that, and I've really gotten to the point now where even within, within the past few months, even talking about and thinking about and making adjustments to accommodate my desire to be more mobile. So given that I'm not going to grad school this year, given that I'm not moving to Colorado, I wanted to have this freedom. Again, you can go back to the last episode and hear about what types of projects that I'd like to work on and focus on over the next couple of years. But it really was about me attaining this type of freedom for myself. And so here I am in Bali, having taken a sort of last minute trip out here, being presented with the opportunity for, to stay for a longer period of time. And it's strange because you would think that freedom feels freeing. <laughs> and yet there is a certain level of disorientation in that lack of groundedness. This like, oh, you want to stay an extra week or two in Bali? Sure. I don't have anything to get back to. 
aside from my plants that need to be watered, but that can be taken care of. And, you know, start running through my mind of, oh, what about this? What about this? And none of them are warranted. Like, I really don't have to get back for anything. So it's a very strange experience that I'm having. And I, I wonder, you know, I do think I'm definitely someone that's always wanted to have a home base to some extent. I do think that's important for me to have a place that I know is home. But that doesn't mean that I can't have this degree of freedom that I have now. And so I wonder if there's just some weird cultural shit that I'm adjusting to, thinking I have to, you know, be secure and have this schedule and uh, have this routine. And to sort of break out of that is both freeing, but strange for sure. So that's really mostly what I've been adjusting to. Southeast Asia is like chill and fine. Mostly what I'm adjusting to is my own neurosis around having freedom. Um, And certainly not complaining at all. I recognize how privileged and lucky I am to have that freedom. But it's just been interesting to observe how that feels. And it definitely feels a little bit different than I anticipated. So, yeah, so we're in Chenggu now, which is a little beach town. Um, Ubud was great. Ubud's sort of more in the middle of the island, jungly. And now we're at the beach. And it's it's really nice here, although it's a little, it really reminds me of where I used to live in San Diego and Encinitas. It's like very beach town San Diego vibes. Um, lots of like frou-frou stores and restaurants. And um, it's nice, but it's... It's just, it's interesting to see and recognize so many Western establishments and things like that in a place that's not at all Western. The the kind of merging of culture is bizarre, but it's beautiful. We, I, we watched the sunset on the beach last night. Oh my gosh. It's really fascinating, like how different the sky looks everywhere in the world. I noticed that when I was in a band in high school and we toured around the U.S. and even going to different places in the U.S., it was very noticeable to me that the sky looked differently everywhere that we went. You can tell, you know, it's an East Coast, West Coast sky, somewhere in Montana, Louisiana, it looks different. And having never been to this part of the world at all, I, the sunset last night, the colors, the clouds, just the overall, it just felt the sky was so big. It just looked different. It was gorgeous. I, I hope to um, watch the sunset on the beach the next few nights as well while we're kind of out here by the ocean. I think tomorrow we're going to a place called Uluatu. Um, yeah, it was just totally, totally magnificent magnificently gorgeous. I can't wait to share all the pictures that I've taken here. Um, I guess those are all my updates from Bali thus far. Um, I'll definitely be releasing a couple more podcasts while I'm here. So hopefully we'll talk a bit more about my experience. It's, I've just been definitely trying as much as I can to be present and go with the flow and, um, so glad that I took the extra time to spend more time out here and explore more parts of the island. It's just really nice. I'm really glad that I came out to this part of the world. It's ridiculous that I haven't ever been to Asia before. Um, sort of exhausted all that Europe has to offer and like didn't really go much anywhere to any many other continents except for Scandinavia, I guess. 
Um, so let's see. Today's episode is with a friend of mine, Ashley. Um, I won't talk a lot about it because I won't be able to do her story or her journey much justice, but uh, this is the first time that I recorded an episode with a friend, so someone that I was familiar with, comfortable with, and as you'll see, it's a bit unscripted. Um, Ashley has a pretty intense story. As a warning, there's a lot about uh, trauma, childhood trauma, sexual abuse, prison, criminality. So if you're sensitive in any way to real life, um, I would advise maybe not listening to this one. But um, hopefully no one is sensitive to real life, right? Because although we may choose to live in a bubble, um, there's a lot of life and a lot of things going on around us um, that I think we all need to be a little bit more aware of. And that was one of the big reasons that I wanted to bring Ashley on the podcast. Um, really the only person that I know in my life who's been to prison. And Ashley is a magnificent person. Um, I liked her instantly. She's open, you know, uh, friendly, brave, hilarious, courageous, just so cool. And I really wanted to have her on the show because I think a lot of the people that listen to my podcast are like sheltered white people. No offense. Love you all. But <laughs> I just have a feeling that's my audience. And I really want to give voice to other experiences and um, other types of stories. So, you know, I think Ashley, and we talked about this afterwards, kind of expected more to talk about the prison industrial complex and just like more about the less personal aspects of what she's been through. And I really wanted to focus on her, I think to humanize criminality, if that's what we want to call it is vital and imperative. Um, it's, it's easy to have a very out of sight, out of mind attitude toward this kind of thing. And um, she references a quote that I've got posted up on my wall. It's a Brene Brown quote called uh, that says, um, people are hard to hate, close up, move in. And I feel like this is that episode <laughs> is to um, allow you to move in closer to an experience that most people have no familiarity with. And I think for the most part, as humans, because we're sensitive and privileged or whatever the reasons, it's easy for us to push this away or to kind of, um, yeah, have some sort of like psychological splitting that goes on where we allow it to exist in some other part of our brain and in the world. And it's really not something that we deal with on a personal level. And I think that's really harmful in our world. I think we, especially at this time, need to be a little bit more conscious of what's going on. Um, and honestly, this is the type of stuff I'd rather be open and conscious about. Like being, it's been very strange to be here and be reading about like America falling apart, which I guess is nothing new, but it really does seem like that's ramping up recently and talking about politics and all the different details. It's like for me for a long time now, for like maybe the past year and a half, I'm just like, okay, politics in America is going to shit. What can I spend my energy and do in the meantime that's actually productive and not like sitting and like jerking off in front of CNN? I just can't take it. <laughs> um, and so this is the type of stuff that I hope we can spend our energy on, which is to 
open ourselves up to what's actually going on in the world with real people, real experiences, what people are struggling with. And um, hopefully this episode does just that for you. Um, what else? I think that's it. Um, as a reminder, this show is ad-free, which means that you are listening because I am psycho and decided to spend all my time and energy doing this for free. <laughs> um, I would like love, not like, I would love for this to become more of a sustainable part of my life. I hope that you all find it valuable. And if you do, it operates a little bit like public radio. So you can go to patreon.com slash Anya Cates, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash A-N-Y-A-K-A-A-T-S. And you can throw me a little bit of cash per month. And not only does that help support the time and energy and money that it takes for me to record the show, but you also get access to all sorts of perks. So as I mentioned, I've recorded solo episodes. Um, I do that once a month for patrons. I will likely be recording a solo episode this month. I think I might talk about the patriarchy. <laughs> all of this toxic masculinity, Gillette stuff that's going on. Um, I th there was this whole thing about the APA, I think, defining toxic masculinity. I've been debating talking about this for a long time and kind of wanted to weave it into an interview, but I might do a, a solo podcast episode about that. So that's coming up. I release worksheets every month um, on different psychological, astrological, philosophical concepts. Um, I do a weekly column of inspiration called Minerva's Muse, where I um, send out like an article I've read, something to watch, something to look at, some art, places to go, um, just kind of like the anything that's inspiring me each week. I put that in a column and send it out to my patrons on a weekly basis, and there's like 12 of them now, so you can even scroll back and get inspired as shit. Um, what else do I do? Oh, horoscopes. Um, I guess, is that it? I don't know. Oh, there's shirts, all sorts of stuff. So head over to Patreon. I'd really appreciate it. Um, I've got about 21 patrons so far, which is amazing. I think for just a couple months of having this podcast, but we need quite a few more in order to make this anywhere near, um, sustainable for me as a source of income. So if you've been listening to the show, if you enjoy it, if you want to hear more, become a patron. Um, as I talk about in the last episode, a lot of what I'd like to do is create community, tangible community. Um, and if that's something you want to be updated on and be a part of and hear about my journey in doing that, becoming a patron is the best way. I'll be sharing a lot of exclusive content um, on there as I travel around um, including some stuff from this trip. If for any reason you don't have five bucks to spare, um, I would really appreciate if you could go to iTunes, wherever you listen to podcasts. I don't know if you can rate and review the show on anywhere other than iTunes, but if you do listen through iTunes, just write a review real quick. S put in some stars. It takes like 60 seconds and it's totally free and it helps the podcast show up in search results and reach more people. Um, other than that, tell your friends, if you hear an episode that you like, that you think someone would enjoy, share it easy as that. <laughs> um, so that's it for now. I will, uh, catch you guys on the other end. I hope you enjoy this episode. All right. We're recording. <laughs> um,
So for everyone listening, this is the first time that I've recorded a podcast with my friend, and also that means that I have not prepared at all. So this should be interesting. <laughs> It'll be an interesting tangential. You shouldn't have told him. You should have just winged it and let him figure it out later. <laughs> they probably would just figure it out. Yeah. Um, so I, um, I'm going to have Ashley tell her story, but we met, I don't know. When did we meet? Like a year or two ago? It's been a while. It's been more than a year. It's been like two years. My, my, um, so speaking of trauma, like trauma's really fucked up my timeline. So yeah. don't ask me for timelines. Timeline. Just, yeah. You have to ask me for events. Like yeah, that's how my- I determine when shit happened. Oh yeah. I had my gallbladder removed because yeah. that's when my car broke down. Or, yeah, you know, yeah. I think we met when tr- around the same time that Trump got elected, which was two years ago. No, it was before that. Really? It was before that. Well, let's not get into arguments. <laughs> and of course, my last two years were like the most traumatic yeah. two years of my life. So I'm not It's helping. been a couple years. Yeah. It's been, I mean, since the first acquaintance and then, you know, progressively yeah. started interacting more and more. So, yeah. 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 And I know, I mean, you've always inspired the fuck out of me. I think Thank you're you. super awesome. Um, and I don't, though, know the breadth of your story and your journey. And so this is also the first time that I'm going to be hearing about that, which is... Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's start there. Why don't you tell everyone a little bit about yourself and the very significant events that have occurred in your life that have made you the person that you are today? Um, it's, it's always like, where do I start? Um, so... I like to consider myself a revolutionary, an activist, um, a mother, first and foremost, a formerly incarcerated woman, um, a survivor of domestic violence, a survivor of childhood sexual assault, a survivor of adult sexual assault. I, I start off with all of that because it's just kind of like so much of who I am or so, so much of that has molded me into who I am. Um, pretty fucked up right where you you start with all your trauma yeah I survived this this that and that um I come from a pretty like blue collar family grew up in Long Beach um everything was I mean everything was everything at at the age of six a friend of the family began molesting me and that continued until I was about 11 um when it first happened I had so many mixed emotions going through my little six-year-old head. I didn't know how to process that. I knew what sex was at the time. I didn't know why it was happening to me. I wasn't sure if I was supposed to be getting pleasure from it. There are so many really deep things that I was thinking at the time, and I and I never. I'm still processing that, you know, to this day. I remember getting up and and taking a shower at like three in the morning after this man had done what he had done to me. And I remember my dad waking up and asking me why I was in the shower. I was in there crying. And I told him that I had peed my bed because I could not verbalize what had just happened to me. And I felt filthy. And I, you know, looking back now, I realized like, wow, that's why I was in the shower. Um, It's like a rape shower. You know, you you feel contaminated, you feel dirty, you want to get it off of you. And, um, I, I couldn't bring myself to to explain what had happened, and I didn't want to. I didn't want to be the kid saying this is what was done to me. I had seen movies about children that had to testify against the, the perpetrators, and I didn't want to be publicly humiliated that way. 
Um, so I just kept my mouth shut and it continued up until I was about 11. Um, at that time, my parents were getting a divorce and when my parents finally did divorce, my life really drastically changed. Um, my mom moved to Mexico. My dad kind of bounced around. I bounced around as well. I lived with friends. I lived with whomever would give me a place to stay. Um, <clears throat> moved to Mexico with my mom, lived there for a couple years. Culture shock, for real. You know, learning how to wash your clothes by hand, learning how to heat your bath water up on the stove and take it to an outhouse and pour buckets over you. I mean, I had a really good time living in Mexico. I had a lot of really fond memories, but going from one environment to a completely different one, you know, in, from one instant to another, and then all the other changes that were happening in my life at the time, um, it was a lot. It was a lot. And we lived down there for about two years, came back to California, um, got involved with people in the streets, started running the streets. Some would call it gangbanging. Um, I, I really would say that I was mostly just misguided, looking for people to accept me, looking for a family. Um, started getting arrested at the age of 13 for little things, loitering, curfew, graffiti. Um, then I ended up getting arrested for Grand Theft Auto. Um, and I took the police on a high-speed chase. So it was like Grand Theft Auto, evading arrest, reckless endangerment. I had like six different felonies hanging over my head at the age of 13. Um, the judge gave me an option to go to a group home or to go to juvenile hall. Obviously, I chose a group home. Stayed. I was in and out of different facilities, mental hospitals, group homes, until the age of 16, 16 and a half. Moved back in with my mother. Um, she wasn't necessarily stable at the time. We were living in South Central Los Angeles off of Normandy and Slauson. Um, got involved with a man over there. Wasn't a good, <laughs> wasn't a good choice. Um, that ended really badly and the house ended up getting shot up. Um, your house that you were living yeah, in with your mom. Our house ended up getting shot up, uh, yeah, it's it seems like my timeline is like okay, trauma from trauma to trauma to trauma. Yeah. Like that's really how I how where the story is for me. Um from there, we we one day to the next. So after the shooting, <clears throat> we ended up just packing up and leaving whatever we could take. My mom had a little two-seater Fiero. And we drove back down to Long Beach and we were staying in hotels or staying in friends' houses. And um we stayed like that for a little bit until my mom was able to get back on her feet. We got an apartment, you know, trying to establish some some type of um, normal life. I started taking little odd jobs here and there. Um, my grandfather, my mother's father at the time, who was still living, decided to purchase a home um, and allow us to stay there. So, so we we moved in. I thought maybe joining the military would be a good thing for me. At least I could secure a future. I thought your eyes got big like you in the military. Yeah. Um, That's a fact I didn't know. Yeah. Um, I, I actually enlisted in the Navy at the age of 17. I was in the delayed entry program because I was still in school. And um, I I swore in, I chose my job, you know, took the ASVAP, all of that good stuff. And uh, we had a house fire, my mother and myself. The house we were living in caught on fire. 
And when the house caught on fire, we were obviously displaced. And so I wasn't, I didn't graduate when I was supposed to graduate. And so because I didn't have my diploma, the Navy could not deploy me. And so they kicked my paperwork back out and were like, okay, come back when you, when you graduate. So I think it took me like an additional three months to graduate. I went back, all right, I have my diploma. And uh, they said, no, we, we already have our quota for women. Go try the army. And I was basically like, okay, thanks, you know, thank you, fuck you very much. Um, my recruiter actually connected me with the army recruiter. The army recruiter's on the phone with me asking me all these questions. He's like, oh, okay, so let me see, how big are your tits? And I said, excuse me? And I was just fucking done at that point. Like, all right, not for me. I'm, I'm good. And around that time is when I met my oldest daughter's father. And... um he was 13 years my senior. So you're how old at this point? Ish? 18. 18. 18 well, when I met him, I was, yeah, I was 18. Yeah. Yeah. So I was 18. He was, what, 13 years old, 20, 32? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I was just kind of like head over heels for him. You know, he could have said, let's go rob a bank. And I probably would have, you know, picked out a beanie. That matched his and mm-hmm. went with him. Um, but yeah, that um, turned into a pretty serious relationship. He himself was heavily involved in the streets and um, activities that are considered illegal. And I was just right there with him. Um, <clears throat> he ended up catching a small case and and going to prison for about 16 months. And I was kind of going through the same bouncing around phase, you know, um, this couch, that couch. At this point, my mom had moved up to Oregon. So this was my, like, really my first time being out on my own and trying to figure things out. Um, I started dancing. I started stripping at a club out in the valley. And I got addicted to the money. And I started using drugs. And I figured, hey, I can sell drugs and take my clothes off and make all the money. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, I'm up here with all these chicks who want to just do drugs all night anyway. Fuck it. Um, So I was, you know, the, the local drug dealer and danced for maybe about six months at the club. And then he came home. And then when he came home, he had this master plan of how to get a lot of money really quickly and get us on our feet. And then we could live happily ever after. And it sounded brilliant to me, you know. (laughs) Um, And he came home and we ended up uh, going out to Memphis, Tennessee, and we got involved in the drug game. And we had a run of about a year and a half out there. I ended up having Asia during that time. Your Uh, daughter. My daughter, my oldest daughter, Asia. And there was a lot of drug use. There was a lot of violence between he and I. There was a lot of um, sexual partners. You know, it was a lot of money, a lot of drugs, a lot of craziness. Um, And then one morning, the feds literally kicked in our door and shot smoke bombs into the house and busted in with AKs and we're screaming for everybody to get on the ground, get on the ground. And I'm, you know, holding my daughter at who's eight months old at this time. 
in my arms and I'm saying, please put your guns down. Don't shoot. It's just me and my daughter. And, um, we were taken outside to the curb. They completely destroyed our home. They kicked in walls, like disconnected the water. I mean, anything you could think of crazy shit. Um, they took down, we had these like bulb, those old school bulb light fixtures where they have like that kind of that glass bowl around the light. They took down the light. They pissed in the, in the bowl and then they put the bowl back up over the light. And I remember when I was picking up the house after everything had happened, I was just like, what is this? What the fuck? It's, uh, it's craziness. I know I'm like kind of all over the place right now, but it's just (laughs) the timeline. Um, yeah, they literally kicked holes in walls. They thought we had some kind of like dope money in the walls hidden. Um, they stole my daughter's piggy bank. Like there was, they stole my jewelry, like anything they wanted, obviously, you know, they got first dibs on. So there were so many things that were taken out of the home and it was just, it was just a really bad situation. Um, Asia's father was arrested that day and he hasn't been home since. And that was going on 12 years now. They never got bail. He was um, given a 30-year sentence for conspiracy to distribute methamphetamine. Um, They never found any drugs in our home. They never had either one of us, you know, doing anything. Um, What they had were people that had purchased drugs that had said they had got the drugs from us. And so that was enough for them to start the investigation and subsequently arrest us. Um, I wasn't arrested at that time because I did not have any involvement, uh, according to them. Um, I remember being very, very scared. I was out in Tennessee. I was 22 years old. I really didn't know anybody out there. I had a baby. Um, every single day there was a law enforcement entity coming to my home, threatening to take my child away, threatening to take me to prison, searching my home illegally, harassing me, um, for what reason? So they take Asia's dad and they think you're still involved and that they're going to get yeah, more well, information or get you or... Yeah, yeah, a variety of different reasons. They would come to the house and, and think that they were going to find more drugs or they would come to the house and think that... Even though they didn't find any drugs right. to begin with. Yeah. yeah. Um, come to the house and just try to get me to testify against him, try to intimidate me, get me to say something because he wasn't speaking, um, you know, trying to use my daughter as leverage against me. They had called the um, Department of Family and Children and Family Services, and they came out. The ATF came out. The DEA came out. The Shelby County Sheriff's came out. I mean, this persisted for about two months. And um, I went to his arraignment, so he was arraigned. Um, The federal government decided to pick up the case. And I went to the arraignment, and I was subsequently arrested at the arraignment. So they decided to indict me as well. And, um, I just remember being in the courtroom and, um, stepping out of the courtroom and I had my daughter and there was a young woman there with me and I had my daughter and I stepped out of the courtroom to go to the bathroom to change his diaper. And one of the marshals came out and said, ma'am, you can't leave. And I said, I'm sorry. What are you, what are you talking about? I'm going to the bathroom to change my daughter's diaper. You can't go anywhere. And I was like, what is going on? He was like, what is your name? Uh, and then at that time, another officer came out of the back and he said, yeah, that's her. And they said, you're under arrest. And my daughter at this point is crying. And I'm like, what's going on? He's like, hand your daughter to your friend. Give her whatever you don't want to get, you know, booked in with you. So I took off my jewelry. I handed her my purse. I handed her my daughter. 
And I just said, you know, we'll figure it out. And I was arrested that day. I was taken down to the local uh, private prison where they housed everybody they arrest, Correction Corps of America out in Mason County, Tennessee. And um, the next day I bailed out and I fought my case for three years while being on supervised release and an ankle monitor. So in those three years from the time I was indicted until the time that the judge actually decided to sentence me, um, I spent that time working. You know, I got a, I got two legitimate jobs. I enrolled in school. Um, I was in like counseling full time. I was really trying to prove myself, you know, I, I fucked up. I know I fucked up, but I'm not a fuck up. You know, there's a big difference. And, um, by the time the judge was ready to hand the sentence down, he didn't want to hear it. He did. He didn't give a shit. I was facing 10 years. So the, the mandatory minimum for my charge, which was, um, conspiracy was 10 years. And you can get, that's like the least they can give you. So in the federal system, they have what are called mandatory minimums, which are guidelines that the judges have to go by. They can't just indiscriminately sentence you and give you whatever, impose whatever sentence they want. They have to use this guideline. So mine was 10 years. So for these three years, I would literally have attacks, like anxiety attacks, thinking I was just going to be gone for 10 years. And I would break down. My body would freeze up. I had several visits to the urgent care where my body would just lock up in certain positions from the stress and the tension. And I would have to be injected with steroids and muscle relaxers to even, you know, be able to hold my head upright. I mean, it was excruciating. It was a very like purgatory, right? Limbo. You don't know what's going to happen to your life. What's going to happen to your daughter. Um, so yeah, so, uh, I got sentenced. I had to self-surrender. I surrendered to um, the Illinois federal prison camp. Um, I spent about uh, 18 months there. Um, While I was there, my mother and my daughter were the victims of a home invasion. So because people on the streets had heard that her daughter, her father and I had been indicted and were in the feds, they were under the assumption that we had large amounts of money in our home. And uh, now that my mom was there with my daughter, it was, she was an easy target. So two men broke into the home or lured their way into the home and tied my mother and my daughter up. I believe Asia was three at the time, three or maybe four, um, tied them up, um, pistol whipped my mother in front of my daughter. My mom has scars on her nose and her forehead to this day, held the gun to my daughter's head actually tried to pull the trigger, but the gun, um, misfired. The gun did not fire. Um, and just, you know, repeatedly beating my mother and asking her, where's the money? Where's the money? She's like, I don't know what you're talking about. There is no money. Like her parents are gone. Please don't hurt her. I'm all she has, you know, them telling her she's, they're going to kill her. She's like, listen, all we have are the electronics and maybe some leather jackets and, you know, take whatever you want. Just don't hurt us. And, um, they ended up just ransacking the house and taking whatever they wanted. And my mother and my and my daughter survived. <clears throat> After that, they moved into a shelter. Um, while they were at the shelter, one of the other young boys in the shelter ended up molesting my daughter. Um, <clears throat> that was one of the hardest things for me was to 
was to hear that um, while you were in prison. While I was in prison, and, and at this point, I had been transferred to Minnesota, and my mother was still in Tennessee. Uh, so, however many miles that is, it had been very cost prohibitive for them to come see me. So I hadn't seen them in about a year, um, and I got the call that that had transpired. And literally my biggest fear had come true. Um, having experienced that as a young girl, knowing everything that I dealt with, knowing like how much when I had children, I said I was going to protect them. I said nothing would ever happen to them. And to know that it had happened, I had failed, right? My poor choices and the systematic or the system, the way it's designed have now have me in this position that I couldn't even protect my own daughter from this sick shit that happens out here. Um, it just sent me, it sent me into a really dark place. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, I ended up, um, I ended up getting released. I ended up, um, going to a halfway house in Watts, California, getting a job, trying to get on my feet, get stable so my mom and my daughter could come back and we could be reunited. Um, the halfway house um, ended up sending me back to prison. Um, one of the staff members who was working there um, ate my food. There was a refrigerator where you could store your food. One of the staff members ate my lunch that I was going to take to work the next day. And when I confronted her, she said that she felt threatened and that um, I was uh, the official the official write up was that I was out of bounds, that I wasn't where I was supposed to be in the facility. And so um, one morning when I was getting ready for work, the marshals knocked on my door and asked me to come outside and they were taking me back to prison. Um, so I went to MDCLA from MDCLA. I went to Oklahoma, which is the federal transfer center from Oklahoma. I went back to Minnesota I was there for about four months and then I was, um, during, <laughs> so throughout all that, I, I was pretty sick mm. and that's where the, the scar on my neck comes from. So, um, when they sent me back, I had this cyst that they had, they had denied any treatment for since I was in, um, Illinois, Pekin, the very first facility. Uh, oh, it's a fatty pocket. Oh, it's an infection. Take some antibiotics. I think I had like four rounds of antibiotics. I was just kind of dismissed, dismissed, dismissed. Well, by the time they sent me back from facility to facility and I got back to Minnesota, the cyst in my neck had swollen to the size of a softball. I was no longer able to chew solid food. I wasn't able to climb up on the top bunk. I couldn't even get out of bed without taking one hand and supporting the back of my head to lift myself out of the bed. Um, it ended up, they ended up operating me seven days before my release. Um, and I, it is my firm belief that they did so just to avoid a lawsuit. Right. Yeah. Because Congress people had gotten involved. My uncle, my mother, and my sister, my sister hired an attorney. The attorney had stepped in and wrote letters on my behalf to the warden, to, um, Grand Prairie, which is a central hub of the Federal Bureau of Prisons. Sorry. Um, so yeah, seven days prior to my release, I was sent to the Mayo Clinic and the cyst was removed. Um, it's not even removed in its entirety. So I still have complications from it where my neck will swell mm. and bruise. So because they had waited so long to take care of the issue, the cyst cemented itself to my artery and it's almost like a shell was left because it's permanently there. They can't remove it without killing me. 
So I was released um, January 27th of what, 13 now? Yeah, 13. And um, came home and just tried to rebuild my life and um, use my voice and speak out against against the system and be a good mother and be a good woman and here I am sitting with you and ask me some questions because I feel like I've been (laughs) rambling oh man Ashley well thank you for sharing all of that I can imagine that's not super easy to talk about but I guess you've probably talked about it a lot and also you're like one of the bravest people I know (laughs) (laughs) yeah I did not realize that it was that I mean, I knew you were in prison. I knew some of that, but I really didn't know the details. So where to begin? Um, let's talk about let's talk about prison a little bit. And I guess within the context of before we started recording, you know, what's so troubling to me in general is that, you know, and you had said especially women, that a lot of people who are committing crimes are doing so as a result of past traumas, right? I think... Is that a fair assessment that like they're likely the vast majority of people that get involved in those types of things are doing so out of desperation, out of confusion, out of fear of abandonment, out of whatever? Yeah, I mean, it's it's so deep. So it really depends how deep down this rabbit hole you want to go, right? I yeah. mean, obviously, I think, well, first we need to to really look at, you know, the system. And when we're say like committing crimes, like what is even considered a crime, right? right? And who, yeah. and when this person does it, it's a crime, but when this person does it, it's not. Right. So we can't just say when people are committing crimes because there's, this shit is deep. So it's like being a woman is a crime. Being poor is a crime. Being right. black is a crime. Right. So there's all these different components. So if you've already come, if you're coming into this world with this shit already against you. Yeah. Yeah, It's like, what are you doing? You're really just trying to survive in the environment, which you were placed and, and you end up caught up in the system and, and it's designed that way. Right. Um, but I think it is a very fair assessment to say that, you know, people are dealing with unaddressed trauma. Number one, they don't recognize that trauma because you're just surviving, right? You're, you don't know that life is supposed to be any different for you because in the environment, in which you are in, everything is like this. Everybody's experiencing this, mm-hmm. um, especially in what is considered right inner cities like Long Beach or Compton or Watts. Like this is this is the norm. This isn't anything that. What are you talking about? Shit is supposed to be different. Yeah, I was talking to a friend the other day, and he was saying that he didn't even know what Christmas was until he went to juvenile hall. He was like, people celebrate Christmas. What is Christmas? You're supposed to have Christmas trees and a tree. And I was talking to him about like, what, you know, do you have traditions? And he was like, no, I can't even remember having a, a Christmas tree until we, I went to juvenile hall at 13. So, I mean, the shit is deep, but especially for women, when we're looking at quote unquote criminality, um, cr- the criminality is directly linked to trauma and when we're looking at statistics, 90% of the women who are in prison currently are survivors or maybe not survivors, right? Because they're in prison, but are survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault. So there's a direct correlation between early childhood trauma and criminality. 
Yeah. And it greatly affects the trajectory of your life. I mean, let's not let's not pretend that it doesn't. Yeah. It just manifests differently for different people. So if you already are dealing with um, financial abuse, if you're already dealing with poverty and you're dealing with the instability and you don't know where you're going to live and homelessness and I mean... And we know this, like, that's the part that fucks me up. And it's not just criminality, it's health issues across the board, right? That this information, the science, is all there that mm-hmm. shows how devastating childhood trauma mm-hmm. is in for adults in the mm-hmm. future. And what I find disgusting is not only that we have that information, that we don't do anything about it, but that we have that information and then we are sending people who are survivors of trauma, who are doing, again, whatever they need to do. They don't have the choice, really. They don't even have the, you know... Like you said, they're in the system. The system is that way by design, right? Um, And then we're like, cool, let's take those people who went through this type of a situation and then put them in prison, which is obviously more trauma. Yeah. Um, Can you talk about prison a bit? Yeah. What do you want to know? (laughs) What do you want to share? I mean, I think we spoke about this before, like that this is so prevalent and that people who are unaware of what goes on within these spaces are choosing to be unaware. Yeah. Um, So I guess what is it that you would like people to know about that environment and what you experienced in that world? Um, Well, I would like to first and foremost clear up any misconception that prison is any form of rehabilitation or that you uh, go to prison and are supposed to come back a better person and that everybody in prison is a bad person. Um, So those are three like really huge things that I want to clear up. Um, Prison is one of the most dehumanizing experiences and I'm I'm speaking obviously from a woman's perspective. It's different for men and women. And a lot of times when we're discussing prison, it's from the male perspective because men are have been historically the most affected by prison. Um, ironically, women are the largest growing um, demographic of people entering prison, and it's grown 800 percent over the last 20 years. So to ignore um, women's stories as it, as it surrounds incarceration is a huge fucking mistake. So thank you for wanting to talk about this with me. Um, prison was designed to, to strip you of your humanity and to remind you on a daily basis that you are subhuman, that you are not worthy, that you didn't know how to function and that, um, that you don't deserve shit and you have no rights. And, Whatever little bit of joy you can find while confined will be taken from you. Yeah. In a nutshell. (laughs) And I'm sure, and corruption. Oh, yeah. Rampant. And despite that, despite all of that, people find a way to survive and to make it through and to thrive while inside. And most of us find a way to come home and rebuild our lives and to use that experience um, to help others and to... To the credit of only you, obviously. Like, let's be clear, not to the system that you are No, in. not yeah. to the system. <laughs> yeah. Not to the system. Any, anything, in my opinion, anything that a person, a formerly incarcerated individual does is because of their own 
willpower, their sheer determination that they've said, fuck this shit. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to let this be my narrative. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, there's only when, when you're broken, when you're at your lowest, when you're sitting in a cell, when you're told when to shit, when to sleep, when to eat, um, when you're constantly dehumanized, when you're stripped out, when you're bending over for people and spreading your cheeks and we call it doing the dance, you know, cause lift your feet, get butt naked, show me behind your ears, let your hair down, shake your hair, pull up your titties, turn around, bend over, spread your cheeks, cough, pick your feet up one by one, twi- twi- uh, twinkle your toes. You know, it's a dance that, y- that you need to do for them. And, um, that's just, it's just like one thing. It's, it's so much, like, I don't even know where to go. It's so much, you know, being fed food that's labeled not fit for human consumption, um, not getting medical attention you need, um, you know, having, you know, just being in solitary confinement, um, having to bleed all over yourself because you're told that pads and tampons aren't a right that you're entitled to. Um, and if you don't have any money, you can't buy any. Um, I mean, the list goes on being shipped 3000 miles away from your family so that they can break down that family structure and create the the next generation of inmates. Right. right, Because statistics show if a child has a parent who's incarcerated, it's like 50% chance that that child would be incarcerated. So now, now we can incarcerate the mothers and children whose mothers are incarcerated have an 11% chance of graduating high school. Right. You want to go deeper than that? Geocare, CCA, all these private prison corporations, all the people who got, you know, pockets or money in in this whole prison industrial complex shit. Uh, They determine what their projected what their projected um, profits will be for their shareholders based on second grade reading levels. You know, so it's like, how much can we break this person? How much can how much damage can we do to their family? to create our next prisoner. To and create... the goal is money. Is that? I, I mean, it all boils down to money. Yeah. It, in my opinion, it all boils down to money, not just for the private, uh, in private prisons, right? In the prison industrial complex, but also the government, because it's like, okay, I'm indicted and I'm in prison for selling drugs and Pfizer and GlaxoKlein-Smith and et cetera, et cetera, fill in the blank, push this shit on our kids on a daily What's the difference between that and this? You can do it legally and I can't. Mm -hmm. Not not saying at all that what I did was right or condoning what I did. I mean, I'm fully aware. You know, it's always this black and white thinking. Well, what you did, you know, do the crime, do the time kind of mentality. And it's so not the case. And then when you're talking about, you know, being being punished for a crime, it's like we're punishing people who already don't have I mean, the ability to, to function within the society. So you're going to take them out of society and put them in this like microcosm that's super fucking dysfunctional around a bunch of other dysfunctional people. And I'm not just talking about the other people who are incarcerated. Those guards are like, Jesus Christ, you want to talk about dynamics and institutionalization. Let's talk about the COs, you know, and how far up the food chain that goes, like that whole dynamic. And then you, you, okay, you sit here. You're experiencing all this in prison, you know, being away from your family, not having access to basic fundamental needs, being stripped of your humanity, being stripped of your name. You don't even have your name anymore. You're a number. Your identity. You've lost every single thing, every worldly possession. You don't know who, you know, you don't know who you are. You didn't know who you were to begin with. And then 
you sit here in this. And so if you don't have any sort of will or desire or somebody to guide you and say, hey, there's more to this or allow yourself to be completely stripped down to build yourself back up, where do you go? You come back home if you have the opportunity to come back home, if you're not given, excuse me, an exorbitantly exorbitantly long sentence or life, you come back home and now you have more trauma. Now you're operating from a deficit. So it already wasn't an even playing field. You weren't, you didn't start at zero. We don't all start from the same place and one person just veers off the road. That's a fucking bullshit ass concept. If I've ever heard one, we all have the same opportunities. No, the fuck we don't. Yeah, no. no, the fuck we don't. I was thinking about that driving up here. Like, wow, it would be nice to own some property up here. I was like, yeah, I was having this whole internal dialogue. Yeah, but people who thought that 30 years ago probably bought all the shit up then and they were in a position to do so. Why didn't my parents think, what, what about my child or let me secure something for future generations? I was already operating at a deficit. Then I, then you go to prison and, you know, have to come home and, and do what? What do you want me to do? So let's talk about what access you had to your daughter while you were in prison and what, how is that set up? Phone calls and letters and pictures if they weren't, if they were allowed in. Phone calls if I had the money on my account, 69 cents a minute per call. And it's long distance. So if you don't have money, you're not communicating by phone with your family. Um, I went two years without any sort of physical contact or seeing her in person. So our um, relationship was maintained maintained in air quotes solely through the phone calls and letters and pictures. Yeah. And I say this, my daughter and I recently participated um, in a story storytelling project. Um, it's on YouTube. You can find it. It's called testify. Um, and we shared our story about what it was like for her and myself. So it was a joint interview. And I talk about how um, detached I became because it was too painful. I mean, what could I do? Mm -hmm. I was literally locked in a cage without access and it was just too fucking painful. And so when I came home, the reality was that I didn't know my daughter. It, it, so <clears throat> when I came home, they were living in Oregon and I was released to California and I could not go out there. And from the time that I had been released, it was an additional two years. So I had gone four years without seeing my daughter. And she was how old at this time? Um, which time? When well, I saw her, so she was three her. when I left. Yeah. She was three when I went to prison. And um, when I finally, when I, when I saw her, I saw her when I went to the halfway house. During that brief time I was in the halfway house, um, I saw her for three days. Mm -hmm. And then I was sent back to prison and then I didn't see her again for another two years. Um, and her dad is still in prison. Her dad is still in prison. Her dad was given a 30 year sentence. Um, and he's been gone 12 years now. And has your experience in, you know, your own experience being in prison and then also your experience having him in prison has probably given you a very well-rounded understanding of both what this is like from the inside and the outside. Oh Yeah. 
Yeah. It, I mean, it hasn't, it hasn't because, you know, the men jail, we call it jailing. The men jail so differently. Mm. You know, women, um, when women are in prison, women create little families. Mm-hmm. Um, and when men are in prison, it's more of a racial and a gang dynamic. So, you know, there's just certain, they have different rules. They, it's a different energy. It's a, it's a completely different beast for the men. Mm. So while I understand certain components, I have no idea what it's like. And he's in a maximum security facility. So, I mean, I couldn't imagine. And can you talk a little bit about what that's been like to try and communicate with him? I know there's been lots of issues with you sending letters that get sent back for complete bullshit reasons. Well, they, they, they make up. yeah. Yeah. So they make whatever rules and regulations up whenever they want to. And then they decide when they want to enforce them and when not. So the newest kick that the Bureau of Prisons is on is that um, you can't send in any cards. If you want to send your family a greeting card, you need to copy it on a copier and then mail that paper copy copy of the card. Um, Kids can't send in any drawings. For what purpose? Um, I honestly don't know. (laughs) What they'll say is like the texture of the colored pencil or the texture of the crayon. It could be uh, contraband. They can't distinguish what's contraband and what's crayon. Shout out to the federal government for not being able to distinguish dope from Crayola. Um, So, yeah, so no drawings from the kids, right? You have to write in straight black ink. You have to write on all white paper. Um, Your envelope has to be white. Um, You can't can't send in, you know, certain pictures. You can't send in over a certain amount of pictures. I mean, they create... Like on a daily basis, some new kind of regulation. And then you don't know because there's no memorandum. There's no uniformity. I mean, keep in mind, this isn't like a state facility. This is the Federal Bureau of Prisons. So this includes all federal facilities in the entire country, not just state to state. So it really depends where your loved one is. If they're in Oklahoma, it might be different from Kentucky. Kentucky is going to be different from Texas, et cetera, et cetera. So they transfer you around. They shuffle you around. And one facility, the regulations vary from facility to facility. So you don't know that this facility enforces this. So you're sending your loved one mail or attempting to maintain the lines of communication or the bonds of family. And it's never getting to him. It's never getting there. How, how is Asia through all of this? How does, how has that been to, I mean, I know you, you, you involve both of them in a lot of the work that you're doing and educating them about this um but what has that been like for asia um it's been it's been hard to put it mildly i mean i see the effects of it almost on a daily basis um asia it's different um the way my incarceration affected her versus how her father's incarceration Mm -hmm. is affecting her um obviously there was that period of time where she didn't have either of us Um, she, but you know, I don't, I don't want to say like it's destroyed her because it it really hasn't. Um, she's endured so much because of it. Um, but she is such an articulate, intelligent, strong, caring, loving, empathetic. Oh my God. I mean, the empathy that my daughter has is unparalleled. Um, beautiful, kind soul. She uses her story. She tells her story. Um, despite 
having it been used against her by a variety of different people amongst her peer group. You know, that's why your dad's in prison. That's why you don't have your mom kind of stuff when she shared it in confidence and then it been used against her. Mm -hmm. Um, She continues to share her story despite that. Does she have shame around it? She, I don't, I don't think she has shame. Um, I wasn't aware that she felt responsible until we did the testify Mm. storytelling that she was under the impression that her parents were away from her because of something she had done for a long time. She had never shared that with me. So when we were doing the interview that came out and I was like, Oh my God, you know, and then we later had a conversation, you know, none of this is your fault. And I'm, I'm so, so sorry that you had to, um, experience this and that you are suffering because of our poor choices poor choices. I'm very, very sorry. And I, I carry that. I that's my guilt, you know? Mm-hmm. So you saw Asia's dad for the first time in four years, you said, mm-hmm. how was that? It was intense. It was Asia with you. Asia, of course. Yeah. 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 Um, she didn't recognize him. She didn't know him, which was obviously part of the plan. He's out in Pennsylvania now. Um, and we're in California, so that's a, a huge trek. Um, so we had three days to visit with him. The first day was awkward. She, you know, I could tell she was uncomfortable. She didn't know him. There was no kind of familiarity. There was no kind of like, there was affection, obviously. He knows who his child is. She knows that's her father. But it was this strange disconnect, you know, that I could identify with. I know, I know what's going on, so... A lot of small talk, a lot of questions, trying to get to know each other. The second day, they were a little bit more familiar. It was a little bit more comfortable. The third day, she was already, you know, sitting over there with him, trying to rub his head, um, really bonding with him. And um, then there was the breakdown because she knew it was the last day she was going to be able to see him. And she didn't want to leave him there. And so she's crying and she's, you know, burrowing her head in my in my chest and she's like I don't want to leave my dad here mm, that's hard it is hard and you're only able to see him at those increments well because he's been um, because he's been in facilities traditionally so far away from us mm-hmm. um, I don't have the resources to to take her every right. weekend um, they're supposed to be allowed visits every weekend does that happen? No, because the facilities constantly go on lockdown. So for instance, if I were to fly from California to Pennsylvania, um, fly in on a Thursday for a Friday visit, but Thursday night something happens, we wouldn't be able to see him. And so it's just, and, and a lot of a lot of families who have loved ones in the system, it's the same story. It's cost prohibitive. They send you far away from your family and, you know, yeah. what are you to do? How is he? I mean, he's maintaining. Yeah. I can't, I can't really speak on that. I mean, he, it's like living in a lion's den. Yeah. You know? Well, and I think as you talked about too, like the disconnection that you had to go through in order to, I mean, it's right. That's what you have to do with trauma. That's why we don't remember so many traumatic events because we, we can't, our bodies can't handle our minds and our bodies can't handle it. Yeah. He's breaking down. Yeah. 
He's breaking down physically. I didn't, I saw him and I mean, imagine 12 years Mm -hmm. of living in a maximum security facility. And then he's had long bouts of solitary confinement. They have a program called um, the SMU, the Special Management Unit, and you're locked down 23 hours out of the day. You get showers every other or every two days. Um, you're fed brown lunch, brown sack lunches, so no hot meals. They're brought to your cell. I mean, what does that do to you? What does that do to a human mentally? You have maybe one book. You read it five times, you know, mm-hmm. like... What do, what do you, this is your rehabilitation and you want these men to come home and all of a sudden be better than they were before they went in? What? No. I mean, if anybody, if anybody thinks that, you know, they would be able to, to withstand that years and years of solitary confinement, I, you know, accept the challenge, go lock yourself in a room with no TV. I mean, a room, not even a room, a bathroom. Right. It's the size of a cell. Do you get the comment from people where you talk about this stuff and someone says something like, well, what are we supposed to do? I get a lot of different attitudes. Yeah. I get a lot of mixed attitudes. Typically when we're talking about um, incarceration or um, what has led to incarceration, there is a lot of misconception, you know, where people, again, people think that everybody in prison deserves to be in prison and they're bad people and they don't realize that all the different experiences in this person's life that led up to that moment. All they get is like this snapshot of the person's life when the crime was committed or mm-hmm. et cetera. Um, I get it. It's really interesting. I think because so much work is being done by the formerly incarcerated um, perspectives are starting to shift. And also because so many people are incarcerated, it's really hard for people to maintain um, that disconnect and that kind of, well, do the, do the crime, do the time attitude. Um, because so many people now can put a face to somebody in prison, right? Like you're like, okay, I know, no, they're not monsters. They're not bad people. Like this is their story. You know, me, you know, I know this person who knows how many loved ones or family members, people listening, you know, can relate to this. So no, we're not monsters. We're not these horrible fucked up people. So now there's a face, there's that personal connection. Like your quote says, people are hard to hate close up. Mm -hmm. But, you know, traditionally a lot of people that are passing the judgments haven't had to really examine that because it's like, this doesn't affect my life. This isn't me. It's those people. But now it's not just those people because mass incarceration is real. And is is this from the system of privilege that exists to the prison industrial complex. Is this an American problem or is this a worldwide problem? And are there other systems of prison or rehabilitation? Do you know worldwide that are doing this in a more humane? Oh, I mean, fuck yes. Yeah. Yeah, Cause I'd love to, because I, and that was sort of the, the, uh, basis of my question, yeah. right? Okay, so clearly a lot of criminality is occurring as a result of systemic traumatic issues. Underlying issues, right. yeah. So the crime, like if someone kills someone because of this, right? What do? What is a better way to do what we are failing at? <laughs> I, I mean, there's no, there's no one answer. It's yeah. so like multi-pronged. 
Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's not just a matter of like how, how people are imprisoning other humans more, more humanely. I mean, it starts from how we're raising our children. It starts with the education. It starts with the poverty, addressing that. It starts with the drugs. It starts with the trauma. It starts with access to resources. It's food. It's everything. It's everything. Um, but yeah, there are other countries who, um, actually manage to rehabilitate their people mm -hmm. and actually look at the causes of criminality instead of like it's it's a rehabilitative model versus a punishment model that we don't practice in this country right can you talk about some of the work that you're doing sure <laughs> <laughs> on a more positive <laughs> note <laughs> since this I, has been so uplifting <laughs> um so I, I participate. I'm, I'm very, very active. I'm a part of several different groups. One of them um, is Women Organizing for Justice and Opportunity. It's a group of formerly incarcerated women who are working to um, address the Department of Children and Family Services and how children are affected by incarceration and how incarceration affects mothers and the disconnect um, that is that is occurring when women are incarcerated and what is happening to our children. Because what, what we found is that people, not people, but children are entering the system and they're being lost and they're being adopted out and they're being fast-tracked. And women are losing their parental rights and not even being notified that they have rights to begin with. So um, we're looking at the, the whole DCFS system Um and how we can impact that and how we can create change. So that's that's one thing that I'm pretty proud of. Mm -hmm. um, another thing is I'm developing what I like to call my prison prevention program <laughs> um, for young women. And it's going to be peer-led. So in a nutshell, just becoming what I would have needed when I was younger. Mm -hmm. And allowing the young women, getting involved with the women on the streets are the young girls who are out here experiencing these things and allowing them to tell us what they need and what would help them to change the trajectory of their lives. Um, so I was recently granted a fellowship through the Wayfinder Foundation. So I was one of 10 up and coming activists selected in the Los Angeles area. And I'm using the fellowship funds to develop that programming. Um, and then also just wanting people to be more aware of self-care, right? And how we're really in need of that. And self-care shouldn't be a luxury for these young girls. It should be something that's part of our routine and we're worthy of it and we deserve it. And it's not something that should be exclusive or elusive to us and just doing nice things for ourselves, you know? How can people, how can we, how can people get involved, right? What, what can, I mean, I assume one of the answers is likely not allowing for misconceptions and lies to be told about this world, which I guess requires some education about it. Yeah. Um, but what would you suggest if someone were to say, Hey, how can I help? Well, what do you want to help with? Any of it. I mean, um, how can people support women in prison, how, like, are, is there anything that aside, I mean, I think a lot of times people like this out of sight, out of mind thing bothers me. Right. Yeah. So what are ways that people can educate themselves and actually do something that's useful 
in a way that it makes a you know substantial influence of any kind. Well, there are a lot of grassroots organizations that are doing this work, and a lot of them are led by formerly incarcerated people. So that would be my first suggestion is to figure out what's in your area and get involved with them. Um, another um, organization that I'm a part of is called A New Way, a New Way of Life, and they have different... Um, Susan Burton, who is an amazing mentor, she um, started A New Way of Life because she herself was in and out of prison and was just tired of the dynamic. And um, now they have several different halfway houses and this whole model that she's constructed um, that really is strictly for women. And it takes the women and gives them a safe place, provides them with resources, helps them, you know, get your ID, all the basic things that you need to start over. Um, So it took a woman who knows the system, who was in the system, knew what she needed to create this. Um, So getting involved with organizations such as that, right? People who have firsthand experience and supporting them and listening to them instead of you trying to say, I want to do this and I know what's best, but yet you've never gone through this. You know, if you want, if you want true change, you have to invite people to the table and listen to people at the table who have these lived experiences. So that's one thing, you know, stop burying your head in the sand. Stop thinking it doesn't affect you. Everything affects you. It's not just, it's not just, you know, mass incarceration. I tell people all the time, women's rights is social justice, right? Like women's rights are gay rights, are um, helping the formerly incarcerated, is food injustice, is, you know, education. Everything is connected. Everything is connected. Stop being so fucking compartmentalized and thinking I'm focusing on this issue. Like environmental justice is a component of, you know, social justice and like everything is connected. So stop being so boxed in by the confines of your mind and, and reach across the aisle and connect your work to, you know, my work and my work to her work, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Well, and even the, the connection between like going back to even self-care, right. Mm -hmm. That are, that like uh, our inner change is so (laughs) imperative to collective change. And I mean, that's one of the things that I feel like inspires me so much about you, like with everything that you've gone through, the lack of resources that you have, that you are one of the few people who I feel like I talk to who questions themselves and questions their choices, who questions the patterns that they're engaged in. And to me, I look at that and I just think, well, I have no fucking excuse. (laughs) My fucking privileged ass. Like, (laughs) Um, but I just, I think that's a really important point is that the, you know, I see so often in especially like spiritual fucking white woman, white women communities of this spiritual bypassing. Yeah. Right. It happens often. Yeah. How do you see that manifesting? Uh, Manifesting in what way? the bullshit you, you, I mean, the one, the thing that I hear all the time is like, as long as I focus on, like, I have to be focused on myself and protect my energy. It's not my responsibility for, to fight on behalf of others, you know? Okay, cool. If, Move the fuck out of the way for yeah, those of us yeah. who want to fight. Get out yeah. of the way. Yeah. Move that shit to the side because I'm not going to spin my wheels trying to convince you that this affects your life. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's just at that point, right? Like how, where do I want to invest my energy? Yeah. What I get a lot is like, why are you so angry? I was just going to say. That, why are you so angry? Right, like, oh, just be, you know, love your way out of this injustice. And, and my question is, how are you not angry? Yeah. How are you alive or awake right yeah. now and not angry? And I'm not saying let anger consume you or let anger, you know, be your, your go-to emotion. But how 
are you alive right now and aware of everything that's going on and you're not fucking pissed off? Well, and if you're not expressing your anger, it's going inward too, which is right. I mean, I, with the little trauma, I guess I've had in comparison to you, like that was a huge thing for me too. people telling me that anger is unhealthy. And for me, I know when I got in touch with my anger, it was like for the first time I felt like it was an authentic emotion. Mm -hmm. It was the first time I felt like myself. And I think that can be addictive and I think that can get unhealthy if you hold on to that and that's the only thing that you're doing. Oh yeah. But to move through that and to utilize your anger to proliferate change yes. is imperative. Yes. You know? Well, and that's what I say. Like I, I allow my anger to fuel me and not consume me. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, too, that's a slippery slope because like you're in this place and like the more you do the work, the more you become aware of all these injustices and the travesties and you know, the bullshit. And it's like, Oh my God. So you do, you do have to find a balance, you know, it's, it's crazy. But again, you know, that goes back to like having resources who has the resources to find balance where, how do you seek balance? How much does balance cost? You know what I mean? Like that's <laughs> yeah. real shit. Right. You know what I mean? Like not everybody can afford a fucking yoga class or some therapy or, you know, like, so there's that whole issue too, but I, I'm, you know, anger, anger is real. And why aren't we letting people emote? Yeah. You know, I mean, why, why are people so fucked up? You know, cause we telling little boys don't cry, be a man. He's fucking two. Yeah. Like, and men don't cry. Yeah. You know, why, why are we so uncomfortable with other people's emotions? Cause we're uncomfortable with our own. I yeah. would say. Yeah. So we all got work to do. Yeah. We yeah. all have work to do. And yeah. just, you know, coming from a place of compassion and empathy, as cliche as that shit sounds, right? Yeah. And it's not going to be easy. Yeah. But the more you understand a person or the dynamics or the backstory, you know, the more you, well, shit, yeah, I, I might have done the same thing. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah. All right. Well, I feel like I could probably have you on because I feel, <laughs> there's like all this other shit that we talk about that has like no relation. Well, not no relation, but unrelated kind of to your story. We talk about sex a lot. Yeah. Relationships a lot. Yeah. So we'll have to have you back on. Talk about sex. <laughs> talk about sex. <laughs> yeah. You're one of the few people, which I love. Um, okay. So two last questions. One, where can people find you? And if you could give a book to everybody... Oh my God. In the world. Just one book? Just one. Just one? I know. That's the hard. most annoying fucking question ever, huh? That's so hard. Or, you know, one of your, one of the books that made a profound impact on your life that you would want I'm going to get, I'm going to say one and then I'm going to think about this probably for like two weeks <laughs> and think of 50 other fucking books I could have <laughs> told you and be like, shit, I should have said that. <laughs> oh my God. I don't know. This is really hard because I spent a lot of time reading. Yeah. Um, You've recommended a few to me, but of course I forget the name. You were like, that wouldn't change my life. I mean, I feel like I, f <clears throat> I feel like I want people to read um, The New Jim Crow mm. um, by Michelle Alexander just because of what we've been talking about. Um, just to give people some context, you know, about the system and where the system yeah. even came from and what it's really designed to do and how it's really operating. Like, the system is not broken. The system is operating exactly how it intended to operate. Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll do that. And another one that came to mind was um, Revolutionary Suicide by Huey P. Newton. Cool. So 
Those are my two books. And where can people find you? People can find me um, on Instagram. Mediocrity murderer. <laughs> I, love I hope it. you can spell mediocrity. <laughs> yeah. Medi- people call me a uh, mediocre. Is that mediocre? No, definitely not mediocre, dude. Um, <laughs> there are any underscores in there? No, it's just, just mediocrity murderer on Instagram. Cool. Yeah, and not for the faint of heart. So, <laughs> yeah, don't come with your sensitive shit. You know <laughs> yeah, what I mean? Fuck no. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. All right, thank you. Thank you. You're the best. Thank you. I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks for sticking around. Hope you uh, enjoyed that episode. Hope you think Ashley as is as cool as I do. I hope to have her back on the show. It would be really fun to just kind of like talk about some other less intense topics. <laughs> we have quite a bit of fun being a couple of inappropriate bitches, that's for sure. <laughs> um The song that I'm going to play you out with today is called um, Increasing Obviousness. And um, this is a hang drum song, I guess you could say. I don't know how I discovered hang drums, but a month or so ago I discovered a video on YouTube, I think, of this amazingly beautiful sounding instrument that I'd never seen or heard before. It's this kind of like round metal dome thing that you play with your hands and I heard it and I was just like oh my gosh that's the most calming relaxing sound I've ever heard I like researched hang drums I was going to go buy one in Santa Monica and then thought maybe that wasn't an investment I needed to make at that time but it's funny because out in Ubud where we've been until the past couple days in Bali I keep passing this place that's like a hang drum store. <laughs> I wonder if it's a sign that like, yeah, maybe I should learn how to play the hang drum. Um, so this is by a group, I guess, called Hang Massive. Um, and the song's called Increasing Obviousness. And it's gorgeous. Um, you should definitely YouTube hang drum videos and see people playing them. I'm just totally mesmerized by it. Hopefully it will put you into the same type of trance state that it puts me in. Um I guess that's it. Again, if you want to support the show, head on over to patreon.com slash Anya Cates or uh, just leave me some stars and a review on the podcast and uh, I'll check in with you guys again. I'll still be in Bali and hopefully have more cool things to share. Thanks for listening as always.